0: Listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's
1: possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or
0: get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Hey, everybody! It is good to be back. So, the last couple of Sundays, I've been with a group, kind of uh, on a pilgrimage. In the Holy Land, uh, in the Middle East, and in Africa. And uh, it was a wonderful experience, and I'd like to tell you more about it uh, sometime. Uh, But today, I'm happy to be back with you all. It's good to be home, and it's good to be with you. Um, In this season of of Lent, uh, Lent is a time that kind of commemorates uh, the time of Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, which itself was a time that commemorated the 40 years in the wilderness that the Hebrews have spent. And as Christians, it's a time of fasting. It's a time of preparation. We are kind of setting things aside. We, we scale back a bit and we prepare our hearts and our souls to celebrate uh, the resurrection of Christ, which we'll do here in a few short weeks. Um, but this particular year because there was a group of us and some of our friends and family from afar that gathered together to kind of travel in that land. It was particularly special for me because we were in those places, right? Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, in the desert, was in the Judean wilderness. So the Greek word for wilderness um, can also be translated desert. And I think um, for us, desert might be a better translation because when I think of the term wilderness as an Appalachian American, um, I think of the woods, right? Going out on the mountains, and there's woods, and there's you know squirrel and rabbit and you know deer. Um, this is not that kind of wilderness. This is a desert. This is like the high desert. So, if you were of, um, if you're somewhere close to my age, uh, you should think the Roadrunner and Wily e. Coyote, right? If you're, if you're not close to my age, then I want you to think kind of northern New Mexico, northern Arizona, southern Nevada, southern Utah, the, the high desert. It's, it's a lot of sandstone, it's very rocky, and it's very, very dry. And so to imagine that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan there, and um, just on a side note, we baptized a number of people in the Jordan. That was a wonderful experience. But Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, and then he was, to use Mark's language, driven out into the wilderness, right, to be uh, tested. And so we were in that land, and it is pretty dry. And, you know, I actually quipped to someone, I said, you realize why Jesus fasted for 40 days during the time of the temptation? There is literally nothing to eat out here, <laughs> right? He didn't have a choice but to fast because it's so, so, so very barren. But then we took a path later. Well, I might say this as well. We did stop. Um, when you're in the Jordan River Valley down there, you're on the lowest place on planet Earth. You're, you're close to uh, a mile below the sea level. You get down to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea itself is another 500 feet or 1,000 feet deep. And so, yeah, it's the lowest place on planet Earth. So way, 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 way down below sea level, um, it is hot any time of year and it is dry. And in the midst of all that, in the midst of that heat, in the midst of that dryness, there is an oasis. <laughs> and it just it felt very apropos for us, the uh, pilgrimage group from Oasis, to find this oasis in the wilderness. It's called N'Gedi, and it's the same oasis that David hid from Saul. When David kind of ran into the Judean wilderness, or I guess it wasn't the Judean wilderness at that time, the wilderness of Judah. Um, when we got there, there seemed to be about a million um, Israeli uh, girls who were on a field trip. Um, there probably was not more than a couple of hundred, but it seemed like a million of them um, as, we tried to, as we tried to hike to, to the waterfall. But it's, it's an amazing place. The psalm that we read for the call to worship today is a psalm of David. A psalm that, about the faithfulness of God that talks about times have been hard, but God has been faithful. And certainly that is one of the messages that I want you to hear today, that God is faithful. But there's a parallel message that the text for today also tell us. God is faithful, but God is also slow. God is a slow-moving God. Like, we want God to be faithful and to be a little quick, right? To come to our rescue and, and be quick about it. But that's not the way the psalmist speaks about it, and that's definitely not the way the gospel writer speaks about it. But I want to I kind of connect a little bit more to the journey that, that I've been on. So we did the kind of the journey, not of the Hebrews, kind of from Egypt up into the Promised Land, We did the journey of the holy family of Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus when they were running from Herod the Great, and they went from Bethlehem down into Egypt. That's the route we took. And so as we got down into the Sinai, which was my first time there. I've never been there before. I I was shocked yet again. Like, I thought the Judean wilderness was desolate, like just rock on top of rock on top of rock. You get into the heart of the Sinai, and it's not rocky in the sense that you see a lot of boulders and rocks. It's just giant pieces of granite. Like, I'm in a bus and I'm looking out both, both windows on either side. And all I can see is just a granite wall. And that, so I lean my head over and look up. And there goes the mountain. Up, 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 and up. And there's, there's nothing on it. There, there's no trees on it. There's no rocks on it. It's just one big solid piece of rock. And in the epistle passage for today, which we're not reading, it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and he's making these connections between what the um, Hebrews had experienced during the Exodus and what the church now experienced. And he kind of, he makes the connection, like you they were like us, Paul says, like there's not a difference between us and them. They were like us. They were baptized by Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And so he uses the, their passing through the Red Sea and them following the cloud as a metaphor, an allegory for baptism. And then he talks about them being fed the manna and he, and he makes the connection between that and communion. Right? They received the bread from heaven. Right, But then they also... Uh, got in trouble a lot. They did things they shouldn't have done. They worshipped other gods. And they committed sexual immorality. And Paul Paul is saying, they've set an example for us. Not as to what to do, but as what not to do. Right? Every moment is a learning moment. You can always learn. You're not always learning what to do. Sometimes you're learning what not to do. And you can do that from... Your parents, you can do it from your boss, Uh, you can do it from your pastor sometimes. Like, I'm not going to do it like that guy. (laughs) Hopefully that's not too much the case. But yeah, there's always an opportunity to learn what not to do. On the list of things it said not to do there, and there's only four of them, the fourth one is don't complain. Which, to be honest, as I'm out there in the middle of the Sinai, and it is nothing but solid rock. And I'm thinking, there's, there's nothing here. Occasionally, you'd run into an acacia tree. It's a small tree with a big umbrella. I mean, very short, like not as tall as me, right? It's what uh, Moses made the Ark of the Covenant out of acacia wood. But still, I didn't see anything to eat there, <laughs> right? And so all I could think of, all of a sudden, I had a certain sympathy for the Hebrews. Like, they had left the, the Nile Delta, perhaps the most fertile ground in all the world. I mean, arguably. I mean, it's there and maybe the delta between the uh, Tigris and Euphrates in Mesopotamia. But the reason civilization goes back so far in Egypt is because it was such a great place for humans to thrive. Um, When We saw these pyramids, pyramids that when Abraham got to Egypt in Genesis, some of those pyramids were already 800 years old. Think about that. Even the giant pyramids of Giza were several hundred years old by the time Abraham got there. It was already kind of ancient history. And so that's from where the Hebrews had come. And then they're out in the most desolate of places and they're saying, I think we might die out here. There's a couple times on this one one part of the trip, I thought I was gonna die. <laughs> like, we're never gonna make it. Like we had driven from the 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 point, the southern point of the Sinai, and we're going up the west coast, and those granite mountains are fading into the distance. You know, the further we drive, the further they get away. And the only thing now between us and them is sand. So first I felt, you know, I was gonna be crushed by the mountain, and then I felt so exposed, like. Bring those mountains over here. It'd be nice to have some cover. But I had this, again, this level of sympathy that I get it. Life is hard. And sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes bad things happen and we can point to the cause. Like we know why it happened. An evil doer did something wrong. But sometimes bad things happen and we can't point to a cause. It seems to be just an accident which is exactly what's going on in the gospel passage that Zach read for us earlier. So there, there are two disasters that have happened. Uh, neither one of them we can find corroborative evidence from history. Like, this is only told in Luke's gospel. The other gospel writers don't tell us. And we, don't, we can't find anywhere else reference to these events. The first is Pilate has apparently murdered some pilgrims who have come from Galilee up to Jerusalem. Now, Josephus does tell us that Pilate was was a pretty vicious leader and that he was responsible for a lot of violence. And so it fits the profile. But he doesn't tell us about this particular event that Luke is telling us. So apparently, coming from Galilee down the Jordan Valley, there were a group of, of pilgrims. Jewish people who were on their way to Jerusalem to worship, probably for one of the um, pilgrimages festivals, so either Passover or Pentecost or Tabernacles. And um, somehow it was believed by the Romans that this wasn't an innocent group of pilgrims, but this was a covert group of rebels, of zealots. And so Pilate had ordered the Roman military and they crushed them. And so they had all been slaughtered. So we see evil sometimes. And we don't don't have to use our imaginations. Um, We know of wars and rumors of wars, right? We need to pray for the peace of our world. Uh, We know what's going on now in Eastern Europe with Russia and Ukraine. And that's evil. That's evil in action. And we can see it. Does it mean that the Christians in Ukraine are somehow less faithful than the Christians in America? That somehow they've done something to deserve this threat? No, of course not. Like, we, we know that. We, Jesus tells us. Um, apparently, there might have been some who thought somehow these pilgrims had sinned away, and now this is happening to them as a result of their sin. But Jesus says, no, those people are no different than you. And then he moves to yet even a more um, difficult thing to explain sometimes. So we can at least blame the slaughter of those Jews on Pilate, right? We, We know that they're evil people who do evil things. But the Tower of Siloam had also fallen. And it was a tower that had been part of the old wall, and 18 people had been killed when the tower fell. And so the question came up again, is perhaps had these people done something that, that somehow they deserved to be part of that disaster? To which Jesus says, no. Now, there's part of me, and I think it's, it's also a part of you, that we know enough of just, just good behavior, if nothing else, not to blame the victim, right? Not to see someone who has suffered and somehow point at the sufferer and say, what have you done? Now, I'm not saying that sometimes the church hasn't been guilty of those things. It has been. But in our best cases, when we're being our best selves, we don't point at those who are suffering and say, Boo, <laughs> you know, look at you. What have you done? You know, what sin is in your life? You've gotten a bad diagnosis from the doctor. Confess your sin. Now, what's interesting, though, is that Jesus doesn't do that exact move, right? He doesn't, he doesn't tell us not to blame the victim. What he does tell us is that we are no different than they are. Like, there's not a measurement here. I mean, I don't think Jesus is trying to say we should measure things this way. But what he is saying is, look, whether it's folks who suffer at the hands of evil people or folks who just suffer kind of being at the wrong place at the wrong time, you all are in the same spot. You're in the same position you are vulnerable to the work of evil people, and you are vulnerable to disasters that can come. Ooh, thanks, Robbie. <laughs> Why don't you go back on vacation, <laughs> right? Take another pilgrimage. Like, how is it that I got these texts to preach? So Jesus follows up these two scenarios. Again, one that we can point to the cause and one we can't really. Seems natural causes or whatever. And he follows it up with this parable, but it, too, is pretty uh, obtuse. It's kind of hard to understand. There's a fig tree. It hasn't been producing fruit for for three years. And so the owner's like, maybe the best thing to do is just cut it down because it's taken up good land. And again, on this trip, um, when we got to Egypt, I saw these homes that... Um, A guide told us that sometimes uh, not just multiple generations of the same family, but multiple families will live in the same home. So sometimes four or five families, two and three generations, will all live in the same dwelling in order to to, um, save the land to grow crops. So some 50 or 60% of the people who live in Egypt are agri- uh, agricultural, right? They're, they're farmers. They're living off the land. And since most of Egypt is part of the Sahara Desert, which is just nothing, right? Sand and wind. The little bit that they have from the Nile is so precious to them that they'll just all kind of live in these kind of communes They're going to all live in the same house so that they could have more land to farm. And so... I'm thinking about that, which I just learned last week, as I'm reading this text, That as the farmer says, hey, if the, if the fig tree can't produce, let's cut it down. We need something producing there. But the gardener says, uh, why don't you press pause? Give it a minute. In fact, why don't we give it a year? Let me, let me dig around this fig tree. Let me irrigate it. Let me put some manure on it, right? And let's see a year from now if it doesn't have a chance to produce some fruit. How are we supposed to interpret a parable like that? We titled this this, uh, service uh, Caretaker. Jesus is a caretaker. He's taking care of us. Like if Lent is a season of hard times, and life can be hard, again, whether it's because of the abuse of powerful people or whether it's just because of natural causes that bad things happen sometimes. Jesus is a caretaker. One of the, one of the suggestions for this title of the sermon was uh, dung spreader. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't go with that one. But it was so good, I couldn't, couldn't pass the opportunity to let you know. I don't know if you remember last year's tide series. I really had an inspiration for titles there for a while. As was a spiritual gift I had. Um, maybe it's coming back. We'll see. Oh, Pray for me. Help him, Jesus. So I think what we often do with parables, right, is we read them allegorically. We try to find out, you know... Where in this parable is God being revealed, right? Where is Jesus being revealed? Where is the kingdom being revealed? And I think to do that here, it's a little precarious, but almost without a doubt, the gardener is Jesus. Jesus is the one who's telling us, don't be too hasty to cut things down. Maybe something hasn't been productive in your life, but... Why don't you you hold on a little longer? Why don't we try and give it some water? Why don't we try to fertilize it? A little softer language there. And, And see, I mean, certainly the judgment day will come, right? If it's time to cut it down, it's time to cut it down. And that too is a lesson to be learned, right? We don't hold on to things forever. Life has a cycle. That's part of what we realize in Lent. But, in fact, we did this, you know, on Ash Wednesday. Those of you who are here, you come forward and someone imposes, is the word we use, the imposition of ash. Someone imposes ashes on you, right, in the shape of a cross. And they say, from dust you have come, and to dust you shall return. Repent and believe in the gospel. From dust you shall come, and to dust you shall return. Repent and believe in the gospel. A big part of what Lent is, is repentance, right? It's, it's a form of, of introspection. It's, it's a time to be in a dry wilderness without the, the, the ease of life and to, and to realize and to take account that our lives are finite. Finite that our lives are fragile and that God is calling us to something more, to something better. Like I would be remiss as your pastor, or even if I was at another church, if I was just a guest preacher, right? I would be remiss to have that gospel text read and not say to you, this is a call to repentance, but what I want you to hear is that this is not a one-time call to repentance, like you're going to come and repent, and we're going to have this contract, and then we're done, you're good to go. This is a call to, I think, a lifestyle of repentance. Like this is a position that we're called to be in. This is the position, I think, that the ancient Hebrews were in. They were baptized in the cloud and water, right? They were fed by the manna. We don't worship a dead God. I know that makes sense, right? We, we worship a living God. But to worship a living God means that we have to be ready to move. We have to be ready to change. Change is exactly what repentance means. To repent means to change. So if I'm facing this way and I'm going in this direction... To repent means to turn, to go a different direction. And I'm not just going arbitrarily in different directions. I'm not just wandering around, right? I'm following God. And God is leading me, God is leading us to new places. And it means that our hearts have to be prepared to accept things that perhaps we weren't prepared to accept. Like, if we don't think God is leading us to something new, then what that does mean is we think that we already have all that there is to have. Let me say that again. If we don't think that God is leading us to something new, then it means that we think we have already all there is to have. But here's the point. We have not arrived We are still on this journey. Two weeks ago, Alex uh, opened our Lenten series, right? Saying that the journey, the gift giver, right? That the journey itself is the gift. Any of you here for that Sunday? Right, a few of you. That the journey is the gift. And so I just kind of wanted to underscore that, right? And and let you recall what you heard there. That this, this passage, this day, is, is a call to repentance. It's to put your trust in, in a slow but faithful God. Put your trust in a slow but faithful God. Here's the thing. Our world is filled with, and not just our world, but our churches are filled with this idea that things can happen quick, right? We, we live in an immediate society. Immediacy, fast food, fast internet, fast everything. Um, there's a book that I love called Three Mile an Hour God. I spoke about it on Ash Wednesday. Three Mile an Hour God. What a, what a funny title. That his other, same author wrote a book called Water Buffalo Theology. <laughs> now that guy's got a gift for titles. But three mile an hour God, a person who's walking at a a typical pace walks about three miles an hour. And so Yokama wrote this book called A Three Mile An Hour God because he's talking about Jesus and Jesus going from Capernaum, where he lived, over to Bethesda, or Bethesda, where he visited sometimes, down to Magdala, or from Magdala to Cana, or from Cana to Nazareth or from Nazareth over to Caesarea, right? How fast does God go? Well, about three miles an hour. That's how fast God goes, because God's walking, right? Jesus is walking from here to there. It's in our lives. This is what a season like Lent can do for us, because look at us. We, we've unplugged, well, for the most part. We've come off the, the big stage. We've, we had a lower stage, typically, right? We've taken it away. This is to give us the feel that we are on a journey. We only can take a few things with us. This is the season of Lent. It comes every year. And it's a time for us to strip away the things that can so easily distract us sometimes. And for us to repent, to realize from ashes we have come and to ashes we shall return. But we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to follow God wherever God leads us. Even if God leads us into the wilderness, God will lead us through the wilderness. Even if God leads us to places we haven't been before, ask us to look in in new ways, to see in new ways. That's who our God is. That's who he is calling us to. There's this um, Catholic monk, his name is Killian MacDonald. In his 80s, he's now over 100, he's still living. He's a Benedictine, lives up in Minnesota. In his 80s, he started writing poetry. And by his mid-80s, he had already published a book of poetry. Since then, he's published two more books of poetry. Um, But one of his books of poetry contains this poem, Swift Lord, You Are Not. I love it. It's actually the title of that collection of poems. Swift Lord, You Are Not. And I want you to listen to it. I'm going to ask the musicians to come back to their instruments. And I want you to listen to this uh, poem being read. And I want you, we're going to sing a song. And then we're going to pray some prayers. And I want you to commit yourselves To once again, having a heart of repentance. Repenting, turning from your own kind of self-sufficient ways where you feel like you know it all and got it all, and turning once again to the living God who is calling you to follow him.
0: By Killian McDonald. Quickly, God causes his blessing to flourish, Sirac 1122 This is not my experience. You are not God at the ready. After you set off the Big Bang, you invented light years, dawdling. Dispatch, you dropped down the nearest black hole. After the pyrotechnics of the start, you looked away, Sabbath when I think you are raising your arm to stretch it out like Moses so I can prevail over the Amalekites, it is a biblical sleight of hand. Actually, you're raising your arm to fix an arrow on your bow aimed at some interstellar gases, storms on the sun. Think less of galaxies. Think small. Then, without the heavy equipment, stoop and hasten to help me. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing
1: wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.